Welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. I'm delighted that joining me today is Rashid Redza Anwaruddin, who is the Chief Sustainability Officer at Palmoil Business, Syme Darby Plantation. Welcome to the podcast, Rashid. Thanks, Ian, and happy to be here. Well, we're going to talk a bit about migrant workers and some of the risks and solutions that are necessary. Rashid, why don't you start by giving us a bit of insight into what for you are the typical migrant worker risks in tropical commodity supply chains? If you look at commodities as a whole or any supply chain, right, whether it's a tropical commodity or not, you know, the typical risks are essentially the same when it comes to migrant workers. We're looking at risks for migrant workers in the source country itself and also in the destination countries. You know, risks that we typically look at, for example, in the source country, the risk of debt bondage, for example, where there's a risk of migrant workers having to pay recruitment fees, having to take up loans and debts just to pay for recruitment fees in the source countries. The, another risk that we look at is basically looking at what they call contract substitution, where the workers themselves, they don't really understand or are misinformed on the type of work that is being offered to them. It comes as a surprise to them when they are told one thing in the source country and when they arrive in the destination country, they are doing something completely different. When you look at the destination countries itself, the risks we look at are around how do we make sure that the rights of these migrant workers are protected. So, you know, how do we make sure that they're not exploited when it comes to things like wages, things like housing, things like physical or verbal abuse or excessive working hours. So in general, you know, in any sort of supply chain, uh, when it comes to migrant workers, typically those are the sort of risks that are associated whenever there are migrant workers. How is Sime Darby Plantations workforce structured? Sime Darby Plantation itself, we are an integrated palm oil company. So we operate across the entire value chain. When it comes to our workers itself, it's mainly concentrated at our upstream operations. So in total, we have around 80,000 workers spread across all of our operations across Malaysia, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands. With regards to like migrant workers themselves, it's mainly a risk in Malaysia because a majority of the workers that we have in Malaysia are migrant workers. Whereas, you know, workers in Indonesia, Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands, they're local workers. In Malaysia itself, just to give you an idea, right, we roughly have around 20,000 workers and they're spread across more than 150 different locations. And the migrant workers themselves, they come from nine different countries, but majority of them are from Indonesia and India, and the rest are from countries like Bangladesh, Nepal, or Pakistan, for example. So that gives us an idea of where these migrant workers come from. Within the country themselves specifically, I mean, are these people coming from the cities in source countries? Are they coming from rural communities? What does that look like? Typically, what happens is that the workers themselves will come from rural communities. They would then come to the cities to attend interviews for companies. And during the interviews themselves, then only they would find out what exactly the work that is being offered. Once they are selected by a particular company, and then the worker will then be processed for all the related documentation, things like passports, visas, and medical screening, and those sort of things, prior to departure to the source country. Is that how things were structured for Sime Darby Plantation? The way that we work is a bit different compared to how typical companies would do when it comes to recruiting migrant workers. So for us, we actually have what we call a dedicated worker management unit. We call it WMU, which is in charge of recruiting migrant workers in the source country. So what they do is they actually conduct direct recruitment in the source country itself, where our team 
would fly to, for example, Lombok, Indonesia to conduct the interviews ourselves. And the reason why we do this is because we want to make sure that the communications that are being done to the workers are direct from the company itself. And how it works in source country, for example, in Indonesia, is that you know we would then work with local recruitment agents. And the local recruitment agents, their role is mainly to source for the workers, to attend the interview sessions itself. And once our team has interviewed and selected them, the recruitment agents would then assist in conducting the various processes and applications for visas, passport documentation and medical checkups that I mentioned just now to prepare them to come to Malaysia. So when we talk about the risks involved in recruitment of migrant workers in the source country itself, what we've done is we've put in various controls in place to mitigate some of these risks. So for example, the interviews themselves, prior to the interview sessions, we actually conduct briefing sessions to the potential workers and to really try to make them understand, number one, what's the sort of work that they should be expecting when they come to Malaysia and the sort of wages, sort of benefits which are provided to them. And during this briefing session, we also explain to them responsible recruitment policy as well, where we actually cover the recruitment costs for the workers from the point of interview onwards. And you know, that's quite key here because with regards to the issue of recruitment fees itself, we needed to put various controls in place to ensure that the agents don't collect any sort of recruitment fees or recruitment costs from the workers themselves. So what we did was we actually, one, conducted a open tender last year to reselect the recruitment agents that we work with in Indonesia. Currently, we only work with six agents in Indonesia. And what we did was we conducted a due diligence with each and every one of them physically. We visited their sites to really understand whether or not they are able to meet our responsible recruitment procedures. And then any gaps which are identified, the recruitment agents would then undergo what we call capacity building, where we actually conduct training for them to close the gaps. Some of the things that we also have done is that the responsible recruitment procedure, RRP in short, those requirements are now also included in their contract service agreements, where they have a service level agreements or KPIs included in there, which they need to meet. And what we do with regards to ensuring that they don't charge any costs to the workers themselves, we put in various controls in place to interview the workers separately from the actual work job interview itself. So for example, once they are selected, an independent team from HQ would then go to Indonesia to conduct uh, sample interviews with workers to ask whether or not they've paid any recruitment costs, uh, recruitment costs, and whether they understand their jobs or not. And once they arrive in Malaysia itself, there's a centralized induction program which each and every worker will need to undergo for a period of two days. And during this period, we actually get a third party to interview the workers again to try and understand whether or not any costs are being incurred by the workers. Once they are deployed to the various operating units themselves as well, we would then conduct interviews with the workers as well to really understand if there are any costs they may have incurred. And any sort of issues which are highlighted from any of these sort of control points are then fed back to the agents themselves where they need to uh, remediate. These sort of findings are then included as part of their key performance indicators, KPI assessment at the end of the contract to see whether or not we want to continue working with them. It would then have an impact on the number of workers that we source from them as well. There are a lot of things that we do. Number one, to make sure that the risk of cost being incurred is mitigated. And number two, also as important, is to make sure that the workers understand that the sort of work that's being offered so, you know, things like, you know, translation of all of the contracts are done in the local languages, 
all of the communication materials are done in less wordy format. So we show videos and pictures instead of text during the during the briefing sessions. So a lot of effort is being done to reduce the risks in the source country itself. Recruitment fees are the big concern, aren't they? Because that's where in the past and ongoing in many parts of the world, potential workers have to pay a significant fee to be granted the employment. And of course, that can lead to debt bondage and to other problems. But I'm interested in, in looking a little bit about costs, because obviously there's a difference between a recruitment fee and the costs for the workers. Are you saying that migrant workers incur no costs at all to come and work with you? All their travel costs, all those sort of things, that's all part of the package for them? The commitment is that once they have been accepted to work for us, all of the various costs which may have been incurred for them to actually get the job is covered by Samdabi Plantation. So, for example, things like you know all the official costs for passports, for documentation, for visas, for medical checkups. And we also cover costs for the local transportation as well for them to attend the interviews, attend the medical checkups. And even the cost for them to fly to Malaysia as well, you know, those costs are actually covered by us as well. Once they are accepted to work in Saimdabi Plantation, uh, they shouldn't have to incur any costs to get the job. Can you give us some examples then of the sort of initiatives you have in the destination country to ensure that migrant workers are treated properly? Once they're working for you, what are the ongoing initiatives that you've got to ensure that migrant workers are treated properly? When we look at migrant workers itself, we need to make sure that you know, throughout the entire life cycle of them, staying and working in Saimdabi, the risks associated with them are mitigated, right? I can walk step by step, right? So upon them arriving in Malaysia, everybody then comes to a centralized induction program. So they spend two days and during those two days, they are briefed on the sort of work that is expected to them, how they are going to get paid, how do they calculate the wages that they are getting and the sort of housing that they're getting, the benefits that they're getting and also the grievance mechanisms which are made available to them. And all of this is done, you know, there's a standardized syllabus that they go through for a period of two days before they are deployed to the various operating units. And once they are deployed to the operating units themselves, what we've done, the key thing that we've enhanced in the past couple of years is ensuring that we have enhanced workers' voice in the operations themselves. So a lot of work has been done around there. There are various initiatives that we have implemented throughout our operations in Malaysia to enhance workers' voice. One of the things that we've done is around enhancing our grievance mechanisms. So previously, we had two grievance channels which were made available to them. And what we've done is we've added an additional one. So now we have three grievance channels. Two of them are run by external third parties and they are available in all the different languages of our migrant workers. They are accessible via phone call, WhatsApp, SMS, Facebook Messenger and all those uh, various platforms. The work that we did was trying to, number one, raise awareness on the availability of these grievance channels and to also build trust in them to make sure that the workers trust them. So around raising awareness, there has been a lot of efforts that are being done to market the availability of these grievance channels. So there were posters, briefing sessions. We actually developed videos in the various languages which were distributed via WhatsApp, for example. And what we did was the third parties behind the grievance channels, they also conduct briefing sessions to the workers themselves so that the workers get to know the people that they are talking to as well. And what we've done to build trust grievance channels as well is now we have a dedicated centralized grievance uh, unit uh, at HQ, which is independent from the operations themselves. So, you know, like what I mentioned just now, there are 150 different locations that we operate in Malaysia. And all of the grievances are now channeled to a centralized unit at HQ. 
and the HQ themselves would then decide, depending on the nature of the particular grievance, who would be the necessary people or party to conduct the interview, uh, to conduct the investigation itself. So things which are quite relatively straightforward. So, you know, I don't understand my wages, for example, the operating unit can solve that. Whereas if there are allegations of physical abuse, for example, or verbal abuse, then those sort of investigations are done by an HQ team. And the HQ team now, there are only certain people who can conduct the investigation and all these people undergo training to ensure that they can effectively conduct these sort of investigations because, you know, it's not your typical investigation. And what we've done is that each and every category of different sort of events, we put a deadline in place where easy issues, for example, or low-risk issues need to be solved within a period of two weeks, whereas more complicated cases need to be resolved within four weeks, for example. What is done as well is that you know, once the investigation has been completed and once any action has been done, the third-party hotline would then call up the worker themselves to close the loop to check with them whether or not to ask the worker happy with, with the resolution. And only once the worker is happy and satisfied with the resolution, then the case is closed. And what we've seen based on this is that we've had an increase in the number of calls that are raised through our grievance channel. So for example, just in the period of 2022, for one whole year, we received a total of 989 calls where 93% of them have been resolved within the stipulated timeline. And that's one of the things that we have introduced. The second thing that we've introduced is what we call social dialogues. So social dialogues itself is a platform where we set up at each and every one of the operating units where the management and the worker representatives would meet together every two weeks to talk about issues relating to that particular operating unit. So what we actually did was, number one, we needed to conduct an election of uh, worker representatives where each nationality is represented in the social dialogue. So, for example, if you have Indonesian workers, Bangladeshi workers, and Indian workers in a particular operating unit, each nationality would have their representative in the social dialogue itself. And we actually conducted a large-scale election where more than 10,000 workers participated in the election, where we have now more than 1,500 worker representatives across all of our operations. Once they are selected, these worker representatives are then trained, number one, how to participate in a social dialogue, and number two, how to identify and raise issues. Because their role is basically engage with their community of their nationality to understand what the challenges and issues are to be raised at this particular social dialogue, which happens every two weeks. And then what happens is also the management are also trained to conduct these social dialogues. And number two, to also how do they effectively engage with workers as well. And what we've seen is that this social dialogues has been quite successful. Out of the 150 different operating units that we have across Malaysia, 2022, more than 13,000 issues have been raised, where 96% of them have been resolved to date. A third one that we introduced is also what we call a mobile application called AllPanPal, where workers are able to scan a QR code at their houses themselves to raise issues on housing. So, you know, if your roof's leaking or your door's not working, uh, you just scan, uh, take your mobile app, scan the QR code and raise this issue. And there are certain timelines that are being put in place to ensure that they are resolved in a timely manner. And all of these are also made available in languages of our migrant workers themselves to make sure that we include them as well. And what we've seen in 2022, almost 40,000 issues around housing has been raised where more than 99% of them have been resolved. 
And one thing to also highlight here is that all of these things, the grievance channels, the social dialogues and the mobile app, all of these grievance channels, they are all digitalized. So our grievance channels, we have an online system for that. The social dialogues, there's also an online system where the operating units needs to input all of the outcomes of the social dialogues. And the mobile app as well, there's a centralized database for it. And what we've been able to do now is that we've been able to have and collect a large amount of data with regards to workers, how they feel about working in Sanbabi Plantation in Malaysia. With the amount of data that we have, we can now have more targeted interventions being put in place to resolve more systemic-related concerns that the workers have. So, for example, one of the most common things that are coming out from the workers are questions with regards to not understanding wages, not understanding how the wages are being calculated. We've done a program where we've conducted briefing sessions at targeted areas around wages. How do you calculate their wages and how do you understand their pay slips? And the basics themselves are being translated in all the different languages. Guidebooks are being provided in different languages to all the workers to understand their wages and how to calculate them and you know, how to read their payslips as well. So in general, you know, the, the way that we see it is that once they are deployed to the various operating units, there are various channels which they are aware of and trust to make sure that in the event that any of these issues or concerns they have, they have a channel to raise them and the resolution can be done in an effective and timely manner. Very comprehensive, clearly, very comprehensive approach that you have. It seems to me it's very interesting that clearly for you, success is indeed finding problems. You've accepted that the problems are there and you want to now find them. So you mean, I guess, your statistics internally about issues raised and problems solved must increase because you're actually looking for them and finding them and resolving them. I mean, it does feel that companies are being more transparent about the challenges here and about what they're doing about worker rights. Do you think that's the case? Is this something you're seeing across the board? Clearly it is the case at Sime Darby Plantation, but what are you seeing elsewhere? There's a lot more attention and scrutiny around social matters when it comes to you know how companies operate now previously in the past 15 20 years the attention has always been on the deforestation side of things the environmental side of things so what we've seen in the past five to ten years a lot more attention has been done towards the social side of things and the thing about social related issues is not as straightforward or clear-cut as an environmental related issue right so if you're an environmental related issue things like deforestation you can apply technology satellite monitoring for example and you can identify that particular issue but with regards to social related matters we are dealing with people and people itself no matter how you put the policies in place no matter how you train them raise awareness do capacity building there's always what we call a bell curve where it's always two to three percent of the people who may not follow the rules right on our side, the key thing here to make sure that the policies, procedures, capacity building, training that we put in place covers a majority of the workers and also managers and mandos and supervisors which follow the rules. And having all of these grievance channels, mechanisms and platforms in place such that in the event that there are any issues, on our side, we can detect it and resolve it as soon as possible. Because at the end of the day, the key thing for us is we need to ensure that workers themselves, employees of the organization, and they need to be happy working with us. Happy workers are basically productive workers, right? This is the sort of commitments that we've uh, always had in place. For example, we had our human rights charter, our child protection policy, our gender policy in place for quite a while now. And basically, we've also put in worker satisfaction surveys to ensure that we really understand whether or not the workers themselves are satisfied 
with working in Saim Dhabi. Because at the end of the day, we need to make sure that workers are happy working in Saim. I totally agree that it does feel that there's significantly more attention now on the social side of corporate impacts. And quite rightly, we can talk about deforestation. We've been talking about deforestation for years, but it does feel that a lot of the social impacts were ignored. Thank you very much indeed, Rashid, for taking us through Sign Derby Plantation's approach on these social issues. Thank you.